Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, Morgan's Mentors, Morgan Neesmith will be talking with industry representatives about career challenges, mentor, and mentee advice. Welcome to DFI's podcast channel, Broadcasting Common Ground. I am Morgan Neesmith, and it is time to move the needle on our podcast on mentorship and careers in the deep foundation and engineering world. Now, for the first time today on the podcast, we're getting a chance to make some wishes come true as we welcome the first guest who was requested by a previous guest from last season, as well as being someone that I've admired since I was a student at Georgia Tech. Dr. Wayne Clough is the Secretary Emeritus of the Smithsonian Institution, the President Emeritus of the Georgia Institute of Technology, and prior to serving at both of those institutions, was a professor at Duke University, Stanford University, and Virginia Tech. At Virginia Tech, he also served as the Chair of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering and the Dean of the College of Engineering. He also then served as the Provost and Vice President of the University of Washington prior to becoming the President of Georgia Tech. Dr. Clough has received uh, numerous awards that we are going to link in the comments of this video, uh, but I did want to point out that most recently in 2020, he was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award for Contributions to Higher Education from the University System of Georgia, as well as the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Georgia Society of Professional Engineers. He remains an active proponent of access to higher education for financially disadvantaged students, teaching leadership skills to engineering students, and addressing issues related to climate change. Dr. Clough, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Morgan. Glad to be here. Now, typically, we ask our guests to tell us everything about their background all the way up to the present day. But in the interest of time, I think we'd, we should break yours up a little bit. Um, so what I would like you to do, I'm really interested from, especially from coming from Douglas, Georgia, to getting to Georgia Tech and then graduate school, and then your work as a professor through your time at Virginia Tech. Well, I, as you mentioned, I grew up in a small town in rural Georgia, South Georgia. And uh, the good part of that for me was both my parents worked. So I was sort of a latchkey kid and I spent all my time outdoors and I loved nature. I loved building things. I would build huts, and dams and all these things. So fairly early as a child in my childhood, I was getting this feeling that I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, and I, being in Georgia, wanted to to go to Georgia Tech if I could get in. Uh, so that was sort of where I was headed. My father was a self-taught engineer. He went through the depression and was not able to go to college, but in essence uh, took uh, extension courses and uh, became an engineer. And I admired him for that. And uh, it was something I wanted to do that I thought uh, connected with him. So, oh, well, I guess first the story. Uh, so uh, I was a fairly good student, but I got um, I spent my more time cutting classes uh, to have fun and to cave, go cave exploring when I moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee for a while uh, and to hike and just to enjoy, uh, expand my knowledge of nature and, and how things work. And uh, so while that seems like a funny thing to do in the sense that uh, it, it wasn't connected directly to my classwork. Uh, it was an, a, a valuable part of my education. 
I was fortunate to have a very good high school that I went to. It's a very big high school. Uh, I had my share of detentions because I cut classes a lot. Um, but the, I think most of my faculty felt that I had something uh, that was, you know, I'd make something out of myself if they would just give me a chance, and they did. Uh, so I was admitted to Georgia Tech. Not, I don't think it's as expected to be their best student uh, because my grades weren't quite that good. Uh, fortunately, my SATs were very good. And so I went to Georgia Tech and uh, I struggled because I did not have good study habits at that time. I didn't know how to take notes or anything like that. And it took me about a year to get that figured out. Uh, also, I joined a fraternity, which probably didn't help. Uh, parted a fair amount and got kicked out of dormitories because of setting off a, what we thought was a rocket out of our window, which didn't go out the window, but went the other way. And so I got kicked out of the dorms. And uh, fortunately, that was good news. I got I moved into fraternity. Uh, but uh, so I got off to a kind of a rough start at Georgia Tech. Uh, but pretty soon I realized that I was falling behind. Uh, and I, I knew I was a pretty smart guy. And I, it frustrated me that I wasn't doing well. And at that point in time, I became a co-op student. Uh, so I worked for the Louisville National Railroad Company as a surveyor. And it really leveled me out. You know, I had to do work that was uh, meaningful and was um, something that, that taught me a lesson about life. And uh, that was very, and I read a lot. I, I, the, the job was not intellectually demanding, so I read all the time. And we traveled a lot into the Appalachians and all these places where the railroad went. Uh, so I just, it was a good time for me. It calmed me down. It made me think about what I really wanted to do. And I had been dating this uh, gal, Ann Robinson, since high school. And she expected more out of me than I, she was getting. And I didn't want to discipline my parents because they'd done a lot to make me uh, able to do what I was doing. So in the end, uh, the, that taught me a very serious lesson about being prepared in life and not losing an opportunity because you're you're just not uh, you're not organized and you're not committed. And so I became committed. I became organized, and I became a very good student. And. As you get into more into uh, your academics, how did you end up at graduate school and then going to on to Berkeley? Well, I was an undergraduate student at Georgia Tech, and I was in civil engineering because I wanted to build something. That was my, my the way I thought about myself. But uh, I took you know structures and sanitary engineering, as they call it in those days, and transportation. None of those interested me. And it wasn't until I was a, a junior or maybe early senior that I took a course in geotechnical engineering called soil mechanics in those days from Alexander Vesich, who was a very, very good professor. And so there were two professors in uh, geotechnical engineering at Georgia Tech, Vesich and George Sowers, who was also a fabulous professor. It was a great combination. One was very practical, George, and one was much more theoretical in Vesich. And it was a great combination for me. Uh, and but to that point, I never thought about going to graduate school because I was felt lucky just to get to university. And at some point in time, and 
when I signed up for some courses, a professor said, you ought to think about going to graduate school. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you're making very good grades. And I said, really? Yeah, but I don't have any money. He said, well, we'll pay you to do this. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, nobody's ever paid me to go to college. So I had never thought about it and the combination of that uh, suggestion and then taking that course from Dr. Vestage really caught, uh, I, I caught fire at that point. I wanted to be, I love geology and I'd taken my geological courses at Georgia Tech, but uh, that combined engineering and geology. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I uh, signed up to go to graduate school in the, the next fall, uh, which I did. And well, I would work and do my thesis with Dr. Vestage, but also study with George Sowers. And then at, at that point, when you got your master's degree, how did you end up going at making the decision to then go to Berkeley? Well, I did a, a, a project for Dr. Vestage. In those days, it was called, uh, you know, where you were trying to take uh, the atom bomb somehow and turn it into a good thing. So the idea was to create a new canal in Panama. And that's what the project that I was working on for him. And so I did quite a bit of work on experimental work on that. But he also was very interested in the behavior of sands under high pressures, in part because of this project that he had, but also because of the pressures you get under a pile. Did both those things for him. And I made a presentation to the Corps of Engineers about our project. And I guess they were looking for geotechnical engineers. And as they were walking out the door, the head of the program came to me and said, we'd like to offer you a job. And I talked to Dr. Vestas about it and said, I haven't finished my thesis yet. He said, well, you should take this. Waterways Experiment Station is a great place to go to learn, and you can finish your thesis there. And that's exactly what I did. Now, while I was there, uh, I became uh, interested in the idea of working for a PhD. And I knew that uh, Mike Duncan, who would be my thesis advisor ultimately, had done almost the same thing. He had come from a rural area, gone to Georgia Tech, uh, finished there, and gone to the Waterways Experience, and then went to Berkeley, went to finished his PhD with uh, Dr. Seed, and then became a faculty member there. And I thought, well, I have an exemplar in front of me. And so I was accepted to MIT and to Georgia Tech, and my wife and I discussed it quite a bit, and we both decided first that it'd be kind of interesting to go to California for three or four years. <laughs> We'd never been west of the Mississippi River. And second, uh, from my point of view, I th they were really doing some amazing things with the finite element method. And I really wanted to get into that. And so we left at that point in time, uh, leaving a place, Vicksburg, Mississippi, where they still had, uh, you know, uh, temperance. So you couldn't buy uh, alcohol. And uh, we went to San Francisco and stayed with our brother the first two nights. And he lived in Haight-Ashbury. And so I'm in Haight-Ashbury walking around, getting high, just smelling the smoke, <laughs> everybody smoking weed. And, you know, we just came from a place where you couldn't buy liquor. So uh, I wondered, well, what have got myself into here? <laughs> but it's great experience. And uh, Berkeley was fantastic. I mean, you had uh, Harry Seed, you had Jim Mitchell, uh, you had Dick Goodman and Rock Mechanics, you had Tor Brecken, Rock Mechanics, uh, you know, you had Mike Duncan, John Leisberg, 
uh, you just had all these fantastic people. And they not only were great researchers, they were great uh, teachers. And you, I know this is about mentoring. And when I went there, they offered me a scholarship. And I said, I don't want it. I want to be a TA. I want to understand if I want to be a teacher. And by the great good luck of fortune, I became TA for H. Bolton Seed. And while I was taking the course, I was also his TA for the course. So I was grading my own papers, I guess you'd say. <laughs> no, he actually graded my papers. Uh, but uh, it was just tremendous to listen to him because he was not my thesis advisor. But being his TA, actually for twice, two courses, uh, I learned so much from him in addition to Mike Duncan and Jim Mitchell and Dick Goodman, people like that. Uh, so it was, it was a fantastic experience and I learned a tremendous amount from them. And especially Dr. Seed, even though we're sort of indirect, uh, because he was an amazing person. And I think that's interesting that you mentioned you the interest you took in teaching and then mentioning all of those uh, very well-known uh, people within the, the, the geotechnical academic world, because you then go on, you teach at Stanford, Duke, and then at Virginia Tech. And then at that point, you have developed... Uh, a reputation as well as a researcher and uh, someone that students are now looking up to as someone that they would like to work with and, and learn from. And I think what's really interesting about that, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I don't know uh, of very many other people who reach that level of recognition in the world of uh, research and geotechnics. And then from the outside looking in, what looks like to make a hard you know, choice or a hard turn into um administration yeah. and that i thought was really interesting and that's what I, I, I would love for you to talk about because i think when i talk to a lot of students and young engineers they seem very concerned about making the wrong choice and mm -hmm. it seems that seems like a decision that it could have been very easy to say i'm i, I don't want to give up i'm giving up too much here i don't want to give this up the, the relationship with the students the research whatever how did you embrace the opportunity to make such a change as opposed to getting bogged down with what you might be giving up? Well, um, so I had, uh, you know, I'm a lucky guy, actually. When I went to Stanford, particularly, I was the only geotechnical engineer there until we were able to hire Ed Kappa's engine. So I had uh, something like 25 or 26 students working for me, master's degrees, but mostly PhDs. So I had uh, all kinds of PhD students working with me and it was just thrilling. Uh, the work was uh, challenging. We, we uh, Because I had so many PhDs, I could branch out and do a number of different things. It was a very fulfilling time. The finite element method was really you know, becoming something that was very powerful and could be calibrated against actual field experience and used as a, you know, help build other ways to predict things because you could mimic through the finite element method, many different alternative situations that you might not see you know, every day in the field. And so I had these wonderful students. Uh, Stanford was a great place. They were very nice to me. Um, so I ended up, uh, and of course, then when I went to Virginia Tech, my wife really wanted to go back east where our roots were, and we moved back there. But I ended up having 34 PhD students. And I think at uh, some point I began to realize as they 
took off and took jobs at Berkeley and Massachusetts and Northwestern and uh, New Hampshire and so forth, uh, that they actually were my legacy. In other words, I had, I, I like to think some of the papers I wrote have some lasting uh, value. And a few of them do, surprisingly, at least if you look at these uh, people who reference these things. Uh, but I realized my students were, were contributing and amplifying whatever it was I did. And in a way, um, they were gone. I, were done. I, I graduated them. Uh, and so that was my legacy. So that was one of the things I think that affected me. Um, yeah, I didn't intend to go into administration. I call myself an accidental administrator. Uh, when I went to Virginia Tech, I was busy shifting gears from going from Stanford to Virginia Tech, and I had a lot of support there, thank you, goodness. Uh, so I was busy setting up my lab, setting up my graduate student recruitment process and all those things. And they had a search for a school chair in civil engineering, and it didn't work out. And I'd been there about a year or a year and a half, uh, and the search committee came to me and said, would you do it? Would you do the job? And I thought, well, okay, I feel a bit obligated if I could help out. But I said, I'm only going to do it for six years. That's one accreditation cycle to the other. They'd have problems in their accreditation cycle. I said, we're going to get this straightened out. And that's part of what I will do. Uh, and so that's it. And so during my entire time as school chair, I did my research. I did my teaching. All those things uh, continued as they had before, although slightly in diminished level. And so that was the way it worked. Uh, I sent my letter of resignation in uh, as expected uh, to the dean. The dean got back to me and said, well, by the way, he says, I'm retiring. And he said, you should be the dean. And so I said, well, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, I thought being a dean would not uh, take away too much from my career as a geotechnical engineer because I could I had a chair, so I had a lot of flexibility. Uh, so I could still do my research and still do my teaching in, jointly with other faculty. And I did that. Uh, so up until the time, and I'm, I was still in engineering, right? But as I was doing that job, part of my job was to work with the deans of the other colleges. And one of the things I noticed was because I, as a child, had always I loved to read. I've read everything I could get my hands on. I still read a lot, and I write a lot now, but uh, I read a lot. And I realized I could communicate with people <clears throat> in ways that most engineers could not. Um, and that, that this was something a little bit unique. <clears throat> so uh, at that point, I was still in engineering, <clears throat> and I, but I did not you know, really care for the administration of Virginia Tech at that time. They were nice people, but not going anywhere. And when I was at Stanford, I used to lecture at the University of Washington a lot. And a lot of the faculty there knew me. And they had a provost who uh, had stepped down. And so they had a search. And so they called me up and said, we'd like to put you into the running to be provost at the University of Washington. And I, I thought a long time about that with my wife. And uh, I was at that point 53 years old because I didn't get into administration until very late. And uh, 
we said, well, if you're never going to try this thing out, you better get going. And I didn't think I'd get that job. I mean, no engineer, no one from the South had ever been provost or president there. And so I have, uh, I actually did a lot of work ahead of time to understand the university's history and everything. So I was very prepared when I went out there for the interview and they offered me the job. So at that point in time, I realized I was leaving engineering and it probably would not be able to come back in the normal sense of thing. And I said, well, this life, take a chance. And I want to give it a shot. So I went when I went to the University of Washington, I knew that was really a sort of the tilting point, if you will, in my life and my career. And it was very uh, wonderful experience. So people treated me well there. Uh, the only complication was that after about uh, eight months, I got a call from the Board of Regents at uh, Georgia Tech. And they said the president there had crashed and burned and they had a search and they wanted me to be part of the search. I said initially, no, they came back again. And I talked to the president at the University of Washington and told him, and he said, Wayne, you can only be president of your alma mater once. <laughs> he said, I would not uh, hold it against you if you decided to do this. So I was uh, the last person in the search, and believe it or not, they offered me the job. Well, that's pretty interesting and brings us being sort of to our next point uh, or that I wanted to talk to you about. You mentioned uh, talking to your wife a lot about these decisions, but as you're making these decisions to to make that kind of change, you mentioned the president at Washington. Were there other people that you could talk to? And sort of one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is it's come up recently that while this uh, podcast is is geared towards younger engineers and students, it has been pointed out that mentorship really shouldn't just uh, end at a certain point that uh, everybody needs guidance throughout their career. So at this point, you've, you mentioned you're in your mid fifties, you're making these sorts of changes beyond who you've already mentioned. Are there other people that you have as either formal mentors or just sort of informal uh, relationships that you could go to and talk to about this? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I think, one thing that I did right in my career was the first of all, I, 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 you know, I was attracted to people who I thought were smart, careful thinkers, and uh, cared about people and so forth. And that started with Alex Message and George Sowers, and then going to Berkeley uh, similarly. But before I got there, when I was at Waterways Experimental Station, I was offered a, a job even while I was there from the Mississippi River Commission by a guy who I really admired. And I told him I would take that job, but I wanted to work for him. And I wanted him to mentor me. So in essence, I chose my mentor because he was a very uh, uh, wonderful engineer for starters, but he spoke well, he got along with people well, he, he, he knew how to bring people together and teams work together. And I wanted to learn how to do that. And so I literally asked him to be my mentor. And he said, I'll be glad to be your mentor. And that was something that in, in a way, uh, although it, it happened sort of serendipitously, but seeking out Harry Seed to be one of my mentors in addition to Mike Duncan uh, was and these kind of things where I was thinking out. Uh, Ralph Peck was another great person who stepped into my life. 
he came to Berkeley and gave two talks and I was the TA, right? So I had to set up his materials for his presentation. He didn't use slides much, interestingly enough. He was a fabulous speaker. And he had, uh, you know, he, he had actually been a radio station announcer and he had this wonderful voice and modulation voice. And uh, I was fascinated by him. And I worked on this business of predicting movements of excavations. He was extremely helpful. He loaned me all his files and all these things. And uh, I saw him as a mentor as well. I, I think one of the most interesting things he ever did for me was the first talk I was, the first conference I was involved with after I graduated from Berkeley was at Cornell. And it was a the big conference of geotechnical conference on soil structure interaction. And I was assigned to be his uh, the, 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 sort of the secretary's will for the recording guy for the panel. And so I called him up and I said, Dr. Peck, uh, you know, you may remember me. We, uh, I knew you at Berkeley and he said, oh, yeah, I'll remember you. Yeah, Berkeley. And he said, I'd like some of your work you've been doing. And I said, well, I won't, I'll be, be there. I'll have a tape recorder. I'll, I'll make sure I record, I'll, I'll record everything. And he said, well, how many people are in there? I said, well, there are four or five. So you had Mike Duncan, you had Lamb, you had all these fabulous people uh, who were there, Jim Gould. And he said, okay, so how much time have we got? I said, well, I think it's about an hour and a half. So we're, he was doing things. He says, he says okay, let's, uh, I think, let's just say there were uh, four people on the panel, right? He said, okay, so let's divide by five. I said, what do you mean to be divided by five? I said, there's only four. He said, no, you will make a presentation just like them. And I was flabbergasted that, you know, here I was just out of college and these guys were huge reputations. And I, I was going to make a, I was going to get the same amount of time these guys were getting. You got to be kidding me. But that was an example of Ralph Peck saying, I want a young person to succeed. And this is an opportunity for you to be exposed to the community and it'll be good for you. You know, I was terrified actually, but to make a presentation like that. But it was just an example. So I think finding these people and connecting to them, uh, don't let them go. You know, say, I'd, I'd like to work with you. Uh, so sometimes in the mentoring process, just go find somebody and tell them. And most people will consider that a compliment, actually. I can see that. And on the flip side, I know, again, you were specifically mentioned by one of our guests last season as the person that they would like to see on the program. And uh, I know you developed the same sort of reputation as someone that students wanted to work under and be mentored by. And what I would also like to talk about is what you see is the differences. I mean, I guess to me, it's kind of obvious that the relationship between uh professor and student in terms of mentorship, but as you move into uh, administration and then with your work at the Smithsonian, how did you continue to work with people in whether a formal or informal manner in terms of mentoring other people? Okay, well, I think there were sort of two levels that one, people would come to me and want to talk to me. And uh, I was more than willing to do it. And that was true at the Smithsonian. Uh, because I was a little unusual there. I was really the first engineer to be secretary. Uh, and also, I had a background. I was the first Southerner. They were all Northerners before. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I think 
at Georgia Tech and at Smithsonian, we put in programs to help people grow. Uh, we put in programs to help people become better teachers at Georgia Tech. We've had a program for people who uh, wanted to move to another level in their career at the Smithsonian. And I spoke always at those groups and I spoke with people and they would come talk to me. Uh, and uh, it, I think it gave them an appreciation that somebody at, quote, at my level would be very interested in them and their lives and where they were going. Uh, so I, that, 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 was, that was a big part of it. Now, over time, I think, as you pointed out, I've had people who wanted to work with me in, uh, or got close to me in different capacities. And I've always been uh, you know, honored that anybody would want my advice. I've been, you know, I've been my good luck to have four people who I know very, very well, who become university presidents, uh, Jean-Louis Chameau at Caltech and uh, Dan Papp at Kennesaw State, and then Gary May at uh, University of California, Davis, and Reggie DeRoche at Rice University. And uh, these were all people I had great relationships with, and I hope provided them with some advice that was helpful to them in their career. I, I would assume you've probably provided them with some advice that's been been helpful. Um, one of the things that I think you touched on a couple of times that I find really interesting is when you were looking for mentors, you were very proactive in going to look to uh, work with certain people. And you've always been open then when people come to you. And that uh, point about um, people who are looking for guidance, being a little bit proactive, I think is interesting because we're at a different time, at least in industry, uh, where companies, I think, are formalizing mentorship and training a little bit more than they did 30 yep. years ago. Um, and that's great. Uh, when I started in the industry, going out to a job site and being thrown out and not knowing anything, uh, while maybe somewhat beneficial, was probably not the best way to train a young engineer. On the other hand, though, there are still, I think, some obligations that a, a younger engineer uh, should have in terms of the relationship with their supervisor mentor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I'd like you to expand on is even within uh, as companies have gotten a little bit more formal and uh, an engineer can expect some some training and mentorship as a part of their company's obligation. What do those younger engineers need to be prepared to bring to the table when they enter the profession uh, and those relationships with their their supervisors? Well, so I think uh, you know, each person, people have different personalities, right? And um, but and for one, I'm a bit of an introvert, so for me to go and approach somebody and say, "I want you to be," I didn't say mentor, didn't use those words in those days. But I want to work with you. I want you to give me your most challenging problems. I, I may not know how to solve them, but I'll work very hard to solve them for you uh, with your help and with your advice. Uh, I, but I think this idea, well, the other thing, as, as you mentioned, companies and universities and organizations like Smithsonian are creating these programs for people who plan to do something different with their lives and or to shift their directions. And at Georgia Tech, there's a wonderful program. Susan Burns and uh, others who've been through this program. Uh, and I always spoke to that group. And uh, as one, they have a series of speakers. 
And so I would come and spend, you know, two hours with them and talk to them. And after that, somebody would come to me and say, could I come and talk to you some more? And I'd say, sure, I'll be glad to do it. Uh, so I think this is a mechanism that, and I'm glad to hear that companies are doing it, that establishes this opportunity, this route for people to say, I'd like to, uh, I, I, I really enjoy having a conversation, but there were other people asking questions. I'd like to spend, if you could, an hour with me and uh, expand on this or that. Uh, and I think that's, uh, the, it sets up that opportunity that I uh, sort of did it on a serendipity basis. Uh, but nowadays, I think you have the opportunity to do that within these programs and uh, take advantage of them that way. And it sounds like the best advice is just for young engineers to take that chance and to go ask someone, because as you said, it's generally received uh, fairly positively and somewhat flattering to be asked your opinion about to, to help someone out or your opinion on a particular subject. Yeah. Um, I do think incidentally these programs, and we did it intentionally at the Smithsonian because the Smithsonian is a very diverse organization. I mean, it runs the National Zoo. It has huge uh, astronomical observatory. It has uh, the National Museum of Natural History, the National Museum uh, of, you know, of African-American history and culture and so forth. And so what we would do is, is if a person from, say, uh, uh, air and space, we would assign them to go over to African-American history and culture and spend two weeks there and figure out what they were doing. And so it was this cross-training uh, that I think those programs can do a really good job to help you appreciate, even you're, if you're in a big organization, where do you fit? And that cross-training gives you a chance to see uh, how things are going in different parts of the organization uh, and also to meet other people who you might not meet otherwise. No, I think that's great. Um, one of the things I would like to talk about, and and again, some sort of from the outside looking at your your uh, uh, achievements over the years, uh, it it could look very easily to the outsider that you've had three very successful careers that you sort of seamlessly transitioned through the whole process. Um, one of the things that I like to talk to young engineers about that it's I, I don't expect them to come in knowing everything or having all the answers, and it's okay to make mistakes. And it's okay to not know and to be able to go look something up and come back later. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about throughout your career, was there a time when things just didn't go quite according to plan originally and it really wasn't the end of the world? You were able to make an adjustment and uh, proceed from there. <laughs> well, probably the, the best example of that was when I went to Georgia Tech as an undergraduate where I was very much unprepared as a student, I didn't know how to take notes. I didn't know how to do any of the thing. And I almost flunked out, but I knew I would disappoint my parents if I did that. And so I buckled down and I mentioned, became disciplined. I uh, got my co-op job and I became work. And I think at that point, I vowed to myself never, ever to be unprepared again in my life uh, that whenever I, took a job or moved to one place, I would really buckle down and be fully prepared for that job. And so as a result, I didn't have too many of these downturns in life that I think can happen to other people. Um, and I'm pretty good at reading people. And I think that's a skill 
that everybody should practice on, uh, especially as you move up the ladder in administration, um, because everybody wants to know you or to get close to you to some extent uh, for different reasons. And you have to understand their motivations, uh, the motivations about them or the motivations about helping somebody else. Uh, and to me, that was a useful skill. Um, I was very lucky not to really have any setbacks. I think when I chose to go from Dean of Engineering at Virginia Tech, where I was very comfortable, uh, probably could have stayed there and become president very easily. But when I went to the University of Washington, that was a big step. And I was not sure what would happen when I was out there. And so I did everything I could to prepare myself before I went there. I read every book on the history of the University of Washington. I knew more about it than the people who worked there <laughs> when I got there. And I think that surprised them a little bit. Um, I, I think when you get in an environment like that, I visited the music department. And I said, look, I've never had a music department report to me, but I can promise you I'm going to come visit with you, I'm going to learn from you, and I'm going to do what I can to make you successful. I had never had a medical school uh, that I, uh, and I went, spent time at the medical school, fabulous medical school. And it turned out that was one of my easiest jobs because those people worked like hell and they pay most of their own salary. Uh, so uh, I learned a lot from them in the process of doing that. Um, but uh, I think, it, you know, to me, you have to recognize where your weak points are uh, and go talk to people and say, look, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm right here. Tell me. Tell me what it is you want to do and what you want me to, to do to help you. Um, so I, and you have to understand that in today's age, especially uh, as you move up the ladder with social media, people know a lot more about you than you do about them. <laughs> And uh, so I found that there were groups, for example, the University of Washington, who have been probing my background with other groups uh, at Virginia Tech and, and Stanford, people who knew me. They wanted to know about me. They knew they found out a lot more about me than I know about them. Uh, so I think you have to go in and be humble, you know, and say, hey, uh, I'm here to help. I'm, I'm learning. Uh, I, you know, I work hard. I'm a fast learner. And I'll do everything I can to make you successful. Uh, I think I, if people get you feel feel that from you, uh, there's less chance that you will stumble at some point. There's no question about it. I tell people that being a president of the university is like being a tree. And every now and then you're going to have a limb cut off, but you don't want to have four or five cut off at the same time. Yeah, that's bad news. Uh, but you can survive one. And so then, you know, you can uh, you can do better as, as you work through it. But I think people understand your true motivations to help them. They'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I like that analogy a lot. I appreciate that. Uh, at this time, it's time for us to take a very brief break and recognize this week's sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Hey, students and young professionals. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Morgan's Mentors. TFI is thrilled to have you here. Besides great podcasts like this one, DFI has lots to offer you as you prepare and begin your career in the Deep Foundations construction and geotechnical engineering industry. I'm Teresa Engler, Executive Director of the Deep Foundations Institute. 
and I'd love for you to get started by becoming a member. Student membership is free and individual membership for young professionals is very affordable. Once you've joined, check out DFI's communities of technical committees, task forces, working groups, and user groups. They're all busy addressing issues affecting deep foundation practices, and by getting involved with them, you'll build your professional network. Also, be sure to browse the publications and resources pages of DFI.org. You'll find magazine articles, technical papers, research reports, manuals and guidelines, plus videos and career information. Students, don't miss applying for scholarships. Applications are open in the spring and the fall and also participate in our annual paper competition. There's also a competition for young professors and grants for female professionals. We value your involvement as the future industry leaders. Now, back to Morgan. Okay, I wanna thank Dr. Wayne Clough again for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Clough, I know you have been working a lot on how the Georgia coast may, uh, maybe not may, will affect uh, or be affected by climate change. In fact, I took my wife to see you give a presentation uh, that you did at Georgia Tech in the last few years. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the geotechnical engineers today should be expecting the profession and their responsibilities to change in the coming years as new issues developed uh, because of our shifting climate? Well, to me, uh, climate change obviously is one of the major challenges facing our civilization. And we are just getting into it. And you can see it with the growing problems with the weather systems that we have and sea level rise and all of these things that are happening. Uh, and you know the oceans acidifying, all of these things are happening. But it's also a great opportunity for civil engineers in particular um, to take advantage of this and to do some. Now, engine, civil engineers, to their credit, I think maybe 10 years ago, really started to get into sustainability. And sustainability is a very important concept because it means what you're trying to do is to do your job in a way not to damage the environment, not to cause problems down the road, and to help create a world where our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, so forth, uh, can, can have a life that is uh, worth living. Now, climate change gets superimposed on top of that. Uh, I tell people, look, you can have a perfectly sustainable city, but if it's underwater, because sea level rise, it doesn't survive. So climate change sort of is bigger than sustainability. But the interesting thing to me has been that uh, if I look at uh, climate change, so we really got into discussing this topic in the 1990s. And there was this understanding, growing understanding, that carbon was uh, increasing rap rapidly uh, in the atmosphere. And But at the same time, that topic was entirely a scientific topic. And the scientists were the ones who were bringing that forward. And I think people thought it would be like DDT when, when DDT was uh, discovered to be harmful to the environment. And in time, the uh, Silent Spring and so forth, uh, something was done about it. But 
Climate change is a different thing. It so heavily affected everything. It affected the energy sector, and the energy sector affects plastics, it affects the clothes we wear, it affects the food we eat, all these things. And suddenly, uh, forces that were there behind the economics of that began to fight the idea of climate change. And so it became this discussion, I call it, of small numbers. And the small numbers being that people would say, well, what's happening in the way of sea level rise? And that time people would say, well, sea level is going up maybe eight inches. Well, so what? You know, eight inches doesn't sound like very much. It doesn't, you wouldn't see it out there. It wasn't a big thing. And then we started talking about the possibility of larger and more complex weather systems, but nothing happened. I mean, it was Katrina happened, but in 2004, but Katrina, people blamed on New Orleans. They said, well, it's below sea level. They shouldn't have built there in the first place. And it wasn't until we had Hurricane Sandy that really hit the New York City area and had severe damages there and loss of life that people began to realize that this topic was bigger than that. And engineers finally began to get in the game. And to me, engineers are a critical part of this. The scientists have borne the brunt of this. And, and uh, in some cases, you know, people have, have lost their, their livelihoods because of the uh, controversies that are involved in this. And engineers were late to the game. Um, engineers are actually working on climate change. They're working on solar cells and all these other things. Uh, but uh, they didn't know it. And fundamentally, the solution to the problem comes from engineering. Uh, engineers are going to solve the problem, but engineers have to approach it in a different way. And, and for starters, engineers have to understand the science. They have to be able to answer the question, why is 8, 10 inches important? Well, it's not 8 to 10 inches. That's an average sea level rise all over the world. But there are certain places like New Orleans, Norfolk, Miami that are subsiding, Charleston. So you got a double whammy of, subs of subsidence and so forth. And in addition, you have high tides and you've added that on a high tide and you have tremendous problem. Uh, and then in addition, you get these concentrated rain effects like Harvey in Houston. And so uh, people began to realize this is a real problem and engineers started to get into it and to me, I always lectured students said, look, here's your job. First of all, don't ever tell anybody that you're working on transportation engineering. Say, so I'm working to save the planet. And I'm working to save the planet because I'm working on climate change. And here's what I want. I want to do it right. Number one, if I have any device or uh, process, I want it to be cheap because we got in trouble with the LED lights, they were more expensive than, and people didn't want to do it. So if your energy source is much cheaper than the existing energy source, well, who's going to argue about that, right? Secondly, it needs to be scalable easily. It needs to be easily scalable so anybody can do it. Uh, and so that's where engineers really uh, come into play. Uh, and uh, it's fun, actually. And in addition, Almost everything you do for climate change is good for sustainability. They really go hand in hand in, in a way. And you feel good about what you're doing. You're actually cleaning up the air. You're cleaning up the water. You're doing all these things uh, along the way that will help the planet. And 
Now, in addition, I try to get engineers to understand we are one species of two million that occupy the planet, two million that we know of. And all those other creatures depend on us to do this right. So don't talk about something being good for human being. This has got to be good for the planet. We don't want to have losses of species uh, unnecessarily. Now, some will go, some, that's where nature is. But right now, we are seeing significant extinction rates of animals as well as insects. And that's a serious problem. Uh, and we have to, you know, get to this uh, solving this problem or we're going to be uh, in, in a planet that we, we really don't want to live on. Well, I'm going to tamp down my inner cynic and believe that the engineers will uh, work on, continue to work on the problems and, and continue to uh, develop solutions. Um, one last question before we go, and this is something we ask everyone, and this will be interesting to me because, again, you are the first guest that we've had that was actually uh, suggested by one of the previous guests. But if you could see anyone interviewed on this uh, podcast, uh, living or not, uh, who would that be and why? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, how about Barack Obama? <laughs> uh, that's a lofty ambition, but I'm not afraid to try. So, <laughs> um, Well, I, I had a chance to work with him when I was Secretary of the Smithsonian and I was very impressed. I worked with Joe Biden, and I was impressed with Joe Biden, two different people. Um, so, yeah, those, I think, uh, reaching outside of our field, people who have a broad view of the world and have an understanding of, of those things. I try to tell people, too, on climate change that it's a religious issue, okay? Because if you look at Pope Francis, he's very actively concerned about climate change. The Dalai Lama is very concerned about it. So, you know, they understand that if a creator gave us this planet, they didn't give it to us to do whatever we wanted to with it. They gave it to us to sustain it so it goes uh, to the generations that follow. So I think uh, the, there, there are a couple of religious folks, and I'm blanking on the name right now, uh, who I think would be very useful to talk to. About this, as a woman from Texas Tech, and I cannot remember her name for the moment. She's now working for the Biden administration, and I think she is a really good feel for evangelical Christians in climate change and how uh, they, they should view this uh, issue of climate change. Um, boy, I tell you what, if you had people who were not around, I'd say Harry Seed would be a fabulous person to have interviewed. He, uh, you know, he. He was kept a lot of things to himself. I had a chance to uh, take trips with him, and I found him fascinating person uh, in the way he thought, in his uh, depth of perception of life, uh, and that's the kind of thing I think uh, that would be useful if you could interview him today uh, and uh, to see him. You know, it struck me at one time I was asked to write a paper on. Uh, on the future of geotechnical engineering. I think it was about 1980 or 1990 or so. And I interviewed Ralph Peck and I interviewed Ben uh, Gerberding. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ben, okay. he's a construction engineer from Berkeley. Uh, and 
uh, both of them were very optimistic about the future. I interviewed a lot of geotechnical engineers at the time who were not optimistic because at that time there was a lot of consolidation going on, a lot of uh, kind of mixtures about geotechnical engineering. But the people with the larger views who were educated more broadly, uh, they, Ben Gerwick, uh, was the name I was trying to think of, um, uh, had a much more positive view of the future uh, because they saw it in a much bigger view than the narrow view of things. And I think people like Ralph Peck or uh, or Harry Seed or Ben Gerwick were really kind of people you'd like to interview if you could, you could go back and interview them. And I think that's something that, as I've had the opportunity to talk to more and more people, we, we sort of get that sort of answer that a lot of the, the people that uh, are recommended is exactly what you said. It's not within this narrow framework of, it, of geotechnical engineering or even just engineering, but a broader framework of uh, society. So that's been really interesting. Uh, but Dr. Club, if you look at the, when I did that little paper, one of the interesting things was geotechnical engineering has been very adaptable and successful at being uh, able to take on new issues. I mean, it started out, it was soil mechanics, right? And then there was soil dynamics, and then there was earthquake engineering, and then there was environmental engineering, and then there was soil and site uh, treatment. So each step along the way, geotechnical engineering grasped a new dimension. Now it's geoenergy. So I think uh, geotechnical engineering has been flexible and adaptable in that way. Uh, and when you look back over it, you get an impression, an understanding that geotechnical engineering has been able to adapt and to modify itself as it's moved uh, into the future and, and make itself viable. Fantastic. Um, Dr. Clough, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us. This has been something, a conversation I, I've really enjoyed and uh Again, you're someone that I've, I've admired since I was an undergraduate while you were the president of Georgia Tech <laughs> during a very transformative time uh, at Georgia Tech. So Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you, Morgan. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, those were good times. And, you know, having been a student at Georgia Tech when it wasn't really a very nice place for students to be, I uh, really wanted to make it a place where students could actually succeed. <laughs> I live about a mile away now, and it is uh, fascinating to see. And and I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh, you know, it was so uh, dirty here, whatever, when I was there. This is what the students No, I think it's great that uh, what the campus has become. So, yeah, Thank you very much. Um, and to all of you out there listening or watching, we appreciate all of you. And we look forward to joining you, uh, us again in the future as we talk to more of Morgan's mentors. And until then, remember that the truth will send a ripple through your body. On behalf of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information, and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained. Nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification, or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Thank you for your time. Keep on surviving.